Hi, I'm Eric Gurna of Development Without Limits, and this is Please Speak Freely, the podcast where we have honest conversations about youth development and education. Welcome again to Please Speak Freely, the podcast where we have honest conversations about youth development and education. I'm your host, Eric Gurna of Development Without Limits. This first episode of Please Speak Freely is brought to you by the Schools Out Washington Bridge Conference. Come to Seattle to the Schools Out Washington Bridge Conference on October 17th and 18th, 2011 to connect, act, and transform. On this first episode of Please Speak Freely, I was very excited to speak to my colleague and friend, Alexis Menton, Assistant Director for Education of Asia Society. Asia Society has been very active in the field in the past couple of years, especially around issues of global competence, global learning, and helping to prepare young people for the 21st century. So without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation. The focus of your work, at least as I and have experienced it is is mostly helping uh, out of school time programs expand their capacity to um, develop global literacy in in young people right mm-hmm. yeah and we'll talk a little bit about what global literacy is and what that means I think yeah um, I, Bef- I, yeah sorry before we go further I should yeah. say that we're trying to um, I know that we've used global literacy in the past but mm-hmm. we're trying to use global competence now so okay. global competence for what students achieve, and global learning for the process that they undergo in, in school or out of school time. Global so global learning, learning for the process and yeah. global competency competence for the product, okay. yeah, for the outcome, basically. Okay. Sorry. So yeah. just to be consistent, that's here we and, go with the institutional. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's good because it's, yeah. um, it's actually it part of, the interesting part of the conversation is all these um, the, the various terms that a lot of people term like the flavor of the month or whatever that yep. a lot of people say, you know, well, now we're on to global literacy, or now we're on to yep. you know health literacy is another one that I've heard. Did did you did you make that change um, because of confusion around the the term literacy? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think um, you know there's we went through a lot of. Um, back and forth about what would be the best way to communicate the concept that we're trying to get across. And I think there was confusion about literacy being specifically tied to reading and writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and global competence, I think, is more connected to this idea of being competent, to being successful in mm-hmm. the world, um, and is not as much of a uh, a narrow term, I guess. So, yeah. Right. Yeah, I, de- I definitely experienced a lot of confusion around global literacy just yeah. from people thinking literacy means reading. Exactly. And if people generally think literacy means reading, then there's an argument to be made that literacy does mean reading. Yeah, um, right. Because it's sort of like <laughs> yeah. what people think a word the means meaning. is generally what it means, if you ask me. Maybe that's a sort of overly populist, <laughs> not uh, academic, uh, elitist enough. But um, So I actually I wanted to jump right in with a question that I have for you that's based on a conversation we just had yesterday. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, You, on behalf of Asia Society, asked Global Kids and Development Without Limits to present at the Asia Society annual conference. And you asked us to present on um, uh, developing global competence through service learning. 
And the audience at the Asia Society Conference is mostly an in-school audience, teachers and other regular school day folks. Right. Um, and both Global Kids and Development Without Limits have mostly a focus on out-of-school time. But we're not focusing on out-of-school time in the presentation. We're, we don't even need to really mention that our main focus is out-of-school time. The, the idea is that we're focusing on how to do successful youth-led service learning incorporating global themes. So I'm, that led me to, to wonder, uh, what do you think the, the field of after-school and summer programs, out-of-school time programs, has to offer the regular school day? Or has to teach the folk, people who work, you know, primarily in the regular classroom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it primarily comes from where out-of-school time programs start, um, and where oftentimes um, in-school educators or staff start. So in schools, I think um, often the focus is on um, the outcomes, the standards, the test, the um, what what they want students to walk out of the classroom with. Um, in out-of-school time, I find that the focus tends to be more on the student, what their needs are, what their interests are, um, and then based on that, where the learning can happen. So it's sort of a, I think the goals at the end of the day are similar, um, and the obviously the passion for helping youth develop and learn is very similar, but the um, entry point tends to look a little bit different. And because of that different perspective um, from out-of-school time staff or folks like you or Global Kids, I think there's um, just a little bit of a, a different lens on um, how to develop young people um, be, to become competent in any respect, but also globally competent. Mm -hmm. I mean, that sort of reminds me of what something that I've talked about and heard talked about, especially in the last couple of years, which is that to calling the field after school is is a little bit you know, s silly because it's really just a defined, defining a field by a time of day, mm -hmm. right? After school is like from three to six or whatever. But yeah. what you're saying is the, the, the pedagogy or the process through which young people are engaged in schooling, really, whether it's after school or in the regular school day, um, it sounds like you're saying it's sort of more youth-centered from the out-of-school time field. Do you, do you see that as something that should be incorporated more by regular classroom teachers, by regular school systems? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a tremendous potential when you let put students in the driver's seat, when you let them take charge of their own learning and of their own development. The flip side or the challenge to that is that um, it still needs to be a holistic system. So I think there's still lots of pieces and lots of aspects that we need to help young people achieve and, and develop in their lives. And um, if it becomes um, completely youth-driven or um, only youth-driven, then I think sometimes we miss that holistic perspective on what are all of the things that young people need um, to know and to be able to do to be successful. So I think there's value in looking at sort of the body of of uh, standards or outcomes that we want for young people. And there's also value in looking at what the specific needs are and interests are of an individual young person. But those two things need to meet in the middle. So mm -hmm. I, I feel like that's a bit of, of the tension, um, that it can't just be about what does this one student want to do without tying it to all of the, the, the bigger picture of all, all of the needs and, um, and outcomes that we need for, for young people in general. Um, but at the same time, if it becomes too focused on all of those things, then I think the approach tends to be about how do we 
jam all this information into one student and how do we make sure that they know all these things without connecting it to what's really relevant to them and meaningful to them in their own individual lives. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit of a, um, I don't don't know how to describe it. It's a bit of a a tension, I guess I would say. Um, I mean, for me, it always comes down to engagement and and what, how young people become motivated to want to learn more and to want to delve into something. Um, and I, I do, that's an interesting way to put it because I, I definitely agree that we don't want to limit ourselves to only what, um, you know, individual young people desire to learn because they don't know what they don't know and all that. Yeah. Um, but the, I'm just not sure why the, the need to work towards certain standards that have been developed by, you know, the, the school system or the, the larger educational field, why that leads to the di- a didactic form of teaching, because I don't think those right. two things go hand in hand necessarily right. at all. Right. I think it becomes a very adult-centric system because then you've got this body of knowledge or skills that you want to impart by the time a student graduates high school, and you need to break it down in some ways. There's a division of labor in terms of who needs to do what in a mm-hmm. social studies class in eighth grade versus you know what an English teacher does in you know their class in tenth grade to get that to make sure that that student has all of those things. And so it ends up being very much about sort of this adult idea of how these things break down and when a student needs or should be getting those things as opposed to the student coming to it and saying, where are the ways that I want to learn? What are the things that I, I want to learn? And a teacher organically um, doing that. I think that's just a harder thing to do in a, in a bigger school system and in the structure that we have for our school system. Um, it, so there needs to be some organization of all of this, um, all of these standards or competencies or outcomes. Um, but at the same time, I think there also needs to be some flexibility to, mm-hmm. um, to let students navigate their own path through that. And I think there's ways and, and places that are starting to do that, but it's, it's a much harder thing to think about because of the nature of, of the education system um, as kind of a, a beast um, mm-hmm. compared to, you know, a, an out-of-school time program that has that flexibility to really shape it around the student population or the group of students or individual students that they that they work with. Right. That makes me think about, you know, the, the high-stakes testing movement and what that means for your work and how you see the current culture in education. Um being potentially at odds with this, this, what I would say is a very progressive approach. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's absolutely a challenge for the schools that we work with and for, um, you know, anyone that we work with in education, I think, regardless of the topic, um, I think we're all seeing that as being sort of a challenge to how do we move forward in education as a field in general. Um, for this work in particular, I think, um, the challenge is not only that there is um, no existing assessment system that's out there that can measure global competence, but that current um, assessment methods are not really adequate to measure global competence, that what I just talked about and what I just described is not something that you could really um, measure in a student on a standardized test or on a multiple choice test. Um, I, I don't mean to interrupt yeah. you, but I, just the. I wonder if even if it's not just that the current assessment system can't um, measure those things, Mm -hmm. but I wonder if the current assessment system is actually an opposing force to developing those Mm -hmm. those Mm -hmm. things. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things we've been dealing with here in New York is the the notion of 
um, increasing accountability for professional development for after school. And part of what they, the, the New York City Department of Youth and Community Development wants to do to um, increase accountability to make sure that professional development is meeting outcomes, meeting the stated outcomes, is um, to actually uh, provide multiple choice pre and post tests to participants in professional development. And I, the reason I raise this as an example is because what the, the concern that I raised is not just that the test isn't a, a good measurement, good measurement system mm-hmm. of those outcomes, mm-hmm. but it's also that by providing that test, we're actually increasing the amount of testing in the world. And that may sound abstract, but we're, 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 basically providing a model for educators who work with young people that reinforces the notion that all of this youth development um, theory is just that theory and what really matters is what's tested. Right. And so do, I'm wondering, is how do you see that or, or have you had, has that been a conversation at Asia Society and in the sort of professional circles you run with that the notion that the testing movement is a, it comes from a philosophical place that is actually at odds with the philosophical place that you just described. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to generalize testing sort of as a big concept because I do think there is a place and a value to multiple choice tests, for example. Um, But I think there's, I think what you just talked about are maybe, there's maybe two different aspects of this. It's testing the, um, the structure of the test, the type of test, and then there's the content of the test. And I think they're, um, they're two different things, and mm-hmm. they, they can influence education in, in equal ways. Um, obviously, the content of the test, as we know, tends to drive um, instruction to say that, that teachers are only covering or feel that they need to cover the things, the content that's on the test. Um, but then there's also the structure of the test that really I think does reinforce, again, a certain type of instruction. And I think from students, also a certain type of thinking. Um, so I think there's there's problems um, with both of those, but I don't think that that's um, insurmountable. I think it's just something that we need to be aware of and think about and talk about, which I think educators are right now, which is, I think, encouraging. Um, we do talk about this and think about this a lot. And actually, a lot of our work over the past um, two or three years has been around the concept of performance-based assessment and really looking um, closely at um, helping teachers and students design performance assessment tasks. And task sounds like a scary word, but really it's an opportunity for students to demonstrate that they are proficient in a particular um, knowledge, again, knowledge, skills, or dispositions. So it's a broader um, way of looking at um, how to allow students to show you what they can do. Um, so we've spent uh, a lot of time really defining, um, again, both in the disciplines as well as across the disciplines, what students need to know and be able to do to graduate both college-ready and globally competent, and then working with teachers to design experiences in the classroom that help students really work towards those specific, we call them performance outcomes and be able to demonstrate that they are achieving proficiency in those performance outcomes. Now, this is, in some cases, a a parallel system to what teachers are doing in terms of grading and testing and everything else that they are required to do by their school or by their district or their state. Um, So 
a lot of what we're hoping to do in future years is help bring these two pieces closer together. And there's been a lot of, um, I think, conversation in the education field about performance-based assessment. Um, we do it as part of a uh, portfolio system. It's called the Graduation Portfolio System, or GPS, in our schools. So, you know, there's there's portfolios are not new to education. That's something that people have been talking about for a while. And performance-based assessment isn't new. But I think there's now um, an understanding and a realization that we need to start thinking about these alternate modes of assessment, this mix of different types of assessment that um, students really need to, and teachers really need to be able to um, integrate all these complex knowledge and skills that I've been talking about. So much of the time when there's criticism of high stakes testing, Mm -hmm. the answer is, well, what else are we supposed to do? Mm -hmm. Like, so it's often like, it's like a lesser of evils type of argument, you know, like, well, okay, fine. The test isn't perfect. But it's the one we have, and we can work to improve the test. And, you know, my perspective is that the, for the most part, the, the form of that kind of testing itself mm-hmm. is, is damaging. And so, you know, I, but what I would love is to be able to, um, sh- you know, shine light on examples that are alternatives to that that aren't damaging, that come from the same um, – you know, philosophical sort of pedagogic perspective as a, a strength-based youth development framework. Right. And I, I don't have those examples at my, mm-hmm. at my fingertips. Uh, I think I see what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, I think for um, performance assessment, there needs to be a clearly stated um, competency or target that you're going for. And actually the common core standards are written in this way. So I think there is sort of an understanding that um, standards need to be um, written in a way that teachers are able to to help students perform them as opposed to just know them. Um, and then in terms of what students actually do as part of performance assessment, um, there really is a, a product. It can be a paper. It can be a presentation. It could be um, a video. It could be any type of, of student work um, that is produced to demonstrate their knowledge and skills. I think um, where the the assessment piece comes in is really then looking at what is the specific evidence in the student work that they have demonstrated proficiency. Mm-hmm. So it's it's looking at a rubric and being mm-hmm. able to find specific places in that piece of student work that show that the student has meet, met this certain level of proficiency. Um, and then looking at the whole work and the preponderance of evidence, um, the quality of that evidence more than the quantity of the evidence to say that this work is either emerging, developing, proficient or advanced, depending Uh on how the rubric is structured. Um, And I think that this differs a a little bit from, obviously, from standardized testing, but also even from grading, in that I think there's um, a, a sense when teachers grade um, that there is a feeling about um, what is a B paper mm-hmm. and what is an A paper. And there's knowledge, obviously, of the individual student and, you know, their background and sort of where they've come from and what they're doing. There's, um, I think, a comparison of how that student is doing compared to others in the class. And therefore, is this an A or, or a B paper? Um, whereas the performance assessment is really focused on those specific pieces of evidence that clearly match to specific pieces of the rubric to say that that is a 
proficient piece of work. So it's really narrowing down on what the student is actually doing as opposed to who the student is or where they may have come from or where they're falling among others in their class or in their among their peers. Um, and it's really focused on um, what, yeah, what the student is actually doing as opposed to what they're telling you they can do mm-hmm. in, in a standardized test or a multiple choice test. And so that to me raises the, the issue of that, that that sort of process requires uh, a level of competence and understanding on behalf of the educator um, that it seems would require a fair amount of um, professional development or other kinds of learning for educators, possibly even, you know, in ed school before they become teachers that, Mm -hmm. and that's like not the kind of, um, it's not the kind of skill I think that a lot of educators bring to it um, at this, at this point. Well, yeah, point. or I shouldn't say it's not the kind of skill because that makes it sound like a, almost like a, a being judgmental of their intellect, and that's not what I mean. I mean it's it's just not what people are used to doing. They're used to teaching, and then the test, you know, multiple choice tests essentially grade themselves. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that it is something that it's not only at the level of the individual teacher, but at the level of a department or a school or an education system as a whole, a community as a whole, that there needs to be. And that's, I think, the reason that this type of assessment has been around for a while and and maybe not gotten as far as it has, although I think it's it's coming back now, um, is because there have been concerns and and questions, I think, valid about um, the reliability, the validity um, of, of testing this way because it is precisely because it isn't standardized, then it becomes, I think there's some concern about, well, does one teacher, um, you know, do it differently or, um, does one, uh, one department or one classroom do it differently? And how can we make sure that this is something that is, um, you know, reliable across the board? Mm -hmm. There are methods for doing that. And and those are things that we've worked with in our, our schools as well, in terms of training, also calibrating teachers across, um, their own school, but also across multiple schools to make sure that everybody is, when somebody, um, uh, scores a paper proficient that that paper is indeed proficient according to a broader group of people so that there's a calibration yeah. i guess uh, yeah i mean personally that, i think a lot of that is is folly to be mm-hmm. honest with you because it it still does come down to to individuals and even when you get mm-hmm. a group of their peers and you start doing these studies it's still that's a one group of, of people and i and i know that the researchers will say if you have a big enough sample that it um, is representative and, and all of that. Um, but still, I mean, there's, I, I think there's a certain point where we have to admit that there's, when you get away from something that's completely standardized and you you get to something that's more responsive and adaptive to individuals, that there's more variance of thought and, um, there's different values and priorities. But I, but I recognize the, um, the intention of creating those systems is to create a system that's just and fair across the board and where, um, you know, it's almost like the, the, the logical extension is that we all just like have one big brain that we can access and we each, you know, are sort of nodes for, for that brain. And of course that's like, you know, science fiction. Um, we're all going to keep using our own brains, but if we can all sort of synchronize our watches and make sure that we're at least keeping in time, um, and that's you know that's something that is not unique to the education field. I mean, there's something there's something to be learned from other fields there too. I think that's right. And I think you know when we think about how um, work 
work in general, not student work, but work is judged in the real world. There aren't tests. You know, it is about a portfolio. It is about the quality of the work according to the assignment or the need. Um, it is about sort of this consensus about what is quality, what is rising to the top, all those kinds of things. There's many professions, even in colleges, you know, that look at proficiency, that look at portfolios, and there's ways to do that reliably and fairly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I don't think that this is something that can't be done. I think it's right. just something that we haven't done in in um, in K to twelve education, and so it's it's definitely a shift, and I think it does um, have implications not only for schools of education and, and teacher preparation, but enormous implications for out of school time. Um, when I think when you open up the door to say that um, you know it's about the proficiency that students demonstrate, it's not about um, sitting through a class or you know being a certain age and therefore being in a certain grade or you know having been in the class all year and therefore you pass and you go to the next year. It's really about being able to show that you can do something. And regardless of where that work comes from, whether it's in a classroom, in a school, outside of school, with a community partner, that work, if it can be shown to be proficient, should count in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So I think there, um, we are excited about the possibility of of this type of assessment system to really help out of school time and the work that students do in out of school time count towards credit, towards grades, towards graduation, towards the things that they need to progress. Um, and I think that's a really, it's kind of a game changer if that, if that works out that way. Um, I think there, there is enormous potential for that. So that's exciting. Um, and, and usually I I feel like when someone describes something as having enormous potential, it means that there's, um, there's large barriers that, that exists to that potential being unlocked or, or, or reached. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd like to, if we could talk about that a little bit, especially when it comes to out of school time, um, or after school or summer or however we want to describe it. I, I haven't found yet, uh, said a, a, a phrase that I like because when you break them all down, they all sound a little ridiculous. It's either a, a, a physical place or it's a time of day or a time of the year. And all of those things are relatively random. Um, but when we, when we think about the, the wor- kind of work that you're talking about and how it um, works in, in school programs or in summer programs, um, there's some, there's some pretty big challenges that come up different ones than mm-hmm. the kind that, that happen in the regular school day. I think mm-hmm. some the same, but, but many different, um, we've worked together for a couple of years now, um, in, in developing some of these resources and tools that Asia society is, um, is providing for the field and is, is, um, sort of struggling with how to take all of this complicated and important work and put it into a useful toolkit for after-school programs where they can really put it into use, mm-hmm. right? We've, mm-hmm. And we've been working together on that. And one of the things that I've, um, that I've noticed about your approach, and I imagine that the, the approach of Asia Society, um, is that the, the idea is to uh, provide a really ambitious and clear model to provide to have high expectations of what people can do and what mm-hmm. programs can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's different. That's a different approach than the approach of other um, sort of intermediary organizations or professional development organizations. I feel like that in, in my view, there's, there's two approaches that organizations like yours takes. And you know, that that's 
it's really it, i guess it's important to say that it's one part of the work of asia society asia society is a is a big organization with a with a big mandate and a lot of goals but there that your work in the after school field has been that way um and the the two approaches that i'm referring to is one is to um recognize the um challenges of the field the current status of the field the the notion that many staff are paraprofessionals, part-time, may or may not be trained educators, et cetera, um, and, and to provide tools to help them make some progress towards some of the goals that we're, we're describing and to provide tools that are um, they can get their hands on easily, that are in small bite-sized pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other approach is what I mentioned about the approach that you all have been taking, which is to have really high expectations, provide many different options, provide um, resources that have different entry points. You know, if you're highly competent, there's things that will challenge you. Um, If you're new to it um, or don't have a whole lot of training in in the area that you can still find tools that you can utilize and sort of build, build your way, build your, um, your level of confidence in, in doing this kind of work. Um, and you know, there's never just two approaches. There's lots of approaches in the middle there. Right. Right. Um, but that, that, that's sort of the, the different approaches that, that I've seen. And I would put age society pretty far on the side of having high expectations. Mm -hmm. And I know one of the things that we've struggled with together is how complicated something can be and how challenging it is. And, um, if we present something that seems, overwhelmingly impossible to after-school educators that they might not even crack the book. They might not even try it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we uh, make it overly simple, then we're not having high enough expectations and we're not providing resources for those who, who you know, have the, the time or the, the background or whatever it is to tackle something more complicated. Um, this is something that, this is the type of thing that I think about a lot. Um, and I'm wondering Given that your work sort of straddles the after school and school worlds, mm-hmm. um, how do you see that? Like, how, how do you deal with that side of it? Yeah, it's incredibly complicated. I mean, the struggle really is that the field is so diverse, that there are so many different types of programs, providers, individuals working in this big field, quote unquote field that we're calling after school or out of school time, um, that it's, I think it's, it's impossible to say, you know, um, what would be the right level or the right, um, uh, type of approach for, for the field in general. Um, I think one of the things that I always try to think about is, um, how to really provide options, like what you were saying before, how to really um, create something that's flexible enough that um, an individual coming in regardless of where they are in their career, in education, or as an educator, um, you know, where they sit in terms of an organization or a program that, um, that may or may not support them in, in their professional development, that they're able to find an entry point. And I think we are aided in that by this this concept of global competence, which is quite large. It can seem overwhelming, I think, but there are also 
um, limitless entry points to global competence. And we've seen um, all types of out-of-school time programs across the country approach this in so many different ways. And um, I'm learning more and seeing more every every month, every year, um, whether it's multicultural education and cultural competence, whether it's arts education, whether it's service learning, um, often programs are doing some aspect of this work, but they're just not calling it global learning or global competence. And I think um, actually tying back to what we were talking about in terms of um, assessments in schools and school teachers grading um, sometimes based on sort of a gut reaction of, is this a B paper? I think in after school, we have a similar challenge in that after school educators often say, well, if um, if this, if the kids are having fun, if they're happy, if they're coming back, if I see them growing in confidence and, you know, all these other aspects, then what I'm doing must be good without really drilling down into the specific learning outcomes, into the specific um, um, naming, the specific things that they're, they're providing to young people. And so I think um, both sides are, are guilty of it in the same way, I guess. That sounds negative, but I think there's um, a lot of, um, of things that could be done, and I think global competence can really help provide a common language and a framework for out-of-school time folks to really look at what they've been already doing, think about maybe ramping it up, but also really tying it and grounding it into specific outcomes and skills for students that even if and um, especially if it's youth-driven, um, that there is still a way that that's tied back to what those students need in terms of um, whether you call it global competence, whether you call it 21st century skills, what they need to be successful in a 21st century. Um, so being able to kind of connect it back, I think, is really important. So if we can provide that kind of framework and then multiple entry points to achieve those different pieces, then I feel like we're, we're hopefully addressing... Um, a broad swath of the field, even if it's not everyone, because I think it is so difficult to um, to create something that would be useful to everybody. And I, I also feel that it's not, I don't think our high expectations are unrealistic. I think there's a lot um, that can be done that is being done out there in the out-of-school time field. And I, I think that it doesn't help anyone um, for us to underestimate them or mm -hmm. for them to underestimate their own abilities. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, uh, your work has a lot of admirers because of that, because it it doesn't um, underestimate the the intellectual capacity of staff. That it recognizes that the the capacity challenges are around time mm -hmm. and you know maybe level of formal qualifications or formal training at certain things. But mm -hmm. it's um, that it's it's not about their ability to understand these things or their ability to to try things out. Absolutely, um, but. But with that, though, you, you mentioned having seen a lot of different types of programs around the country, mm -hmm. um, and you and I are both are around at the, the sort of conference circuit, you know, meeting lots of people from lots of different programs. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I want to sort of call something out a little bit, which I feel like is not usually discussed, mm -hmm. um, and that is that I've noticed, given that I've done a lot of site visits around the country to after-school programs, that there is often uh, a big gap between um, how people describe what their program's doing and what their program's actually doing or what's actually happening in their program. Mm -hmm. um, and that it's not in, usually intentional um, misrepresentation, but that 
people have the idea of what they want to be happening in their program, mm-hmm. and particularly people in positions of leadership who are not at the program on a day-to-day basis, walk around with this idea in their head or on paper or on the web describing what their program does, and they put it in grant proposals, and they put it on brochures and on websites, and before you know it, they've sort of believed their own hype. And then, so you hear about what a program's doing and how amazing it is, and, and you know, they're doing this and they're doing that, and then you go visit, and sometimes what you see is not at all what was described. And that's, uh, as I said, I don't believe that that's mostly intentional misrepresentation in any way. I don't think it's, um, one of the things I love about our field is that it, it is truly full of good intentions. Um, and you know, good people who are really honestly trying to do really good work. Um, but still somehow or other this, this happens, whether it's intentional or not. Um, it happens quite a bit. And in some of the most sort of, um, what's the word? Ballyhooed. Is that the right word? That's a word. <laughs> That's a word, right? Um, some of the most ballyhooed programs, um, maybe it's because the expectations are high because you've heard about them and seen them on some news programs or something like that. And then you go visit and um, it can be shocking. Not that there's something bad happening in the program, but but there's not nearly, nearly the level of depth or, or, or rigor or engagement that you hear described. And I'm wondering, do you do you see that as well? And and if so, how, what do you what do you think about it? Um, hmm. I think it might be two things. I mean, I think for me, I think for any of us who work in this field but do not work in the field, it's really a challenge to extrapolate anything about a program from a site visit. Um, I don't know how much time you're talking about in terms of spending in these programs, but, you know, a day, a week, whatever mm-hmm. it may be, it's really difficult for me then to make assumptions about what that program's doing overall. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true um, not only for after school, but school as well. When you come into a teacher's classroom and look at what they're doing in one period of one day, um, it may not seem like what you're expecting. Right. Um, but the what what they're able to impart or the gains that they're getting with those students over a year over multiple years might look very different so Mm -hmm. so in my mind then that leads to think about the challenge that after school and out of school time has in terms of being able to show the impact and be able to measure that impact so um again it, it's to me, it's it's a question of what you're seeing in a brief period of time compared to um, what can be done um, over a longer period of time in in a program. If you're from the perspective of a student who's coming regularly, whether mm-hmm. it's every day or or you know just over several months, and then I think it's also just a difficulty in not being able to really really uh, talk about um, what what's being accomplished in a specific way mm-hmm. um, because there there aren't. Um, specific measures for what's happening in out of school time or, or that they're not, um, I don't know if there aren't specific, but maybe that, that we haven't come to some consensus about what those are um, as a field. And that obviously they're, the challenge is that they're not as valued as we would like them to be in terms of education overall. So then you tend to end up with a lot of, I think, rhetoric about, you know, and a lot of um, vague terminology about mm-hmm. what's happening. And then when you have that, obviously it's interpreted very differently. And so you may um, hear somebody speak about their program or read about their program and get a very different idea in your head, you know, 
than what's happening in reality, it might not be inaccurate. It just might be a different interpretation because that um, specific type of outcomes or language is not common. So yeah, those are actually, yeah, those are really interesting points and make me kind of think about a little bit. The first point about, um, you know, that you, it's, it's hard to really make a judgment about a program based on a, a site visit, which are, you know, often just a few hours and maybe a couple of days. Um, and, you know, I guess I have, I have two, I'm of two minds with that. On the one hand, I think you're absolutely right because oftentimes the, the work doesn't look the way you think it will, or you you happen to be just catching a snapshot. Um, you're not catching a highlight reel. Um, you're just, you're just dipping in and dipping out, you know? So on the one hand, I think that's true. On, on another hand though, um, I think that there are things that you can learn quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the things that you can learn quickly have to do with the, um, intangibles that create the conditions for success for the, 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 tangible things. Yeah. Um, meaning the, the positive spirit that young people have towards the program, the level of engagement, the, the types of interactions and relationships that staff and young people have. I mean, again, it's just a snapshot. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and, and I may be guilty of being too quick to judge. Um, on the other hand, I, I don't want to be overly diplomatic mm-hmm. as someone who is no longer working in direct service, but is still in the field, as you said. Um, you know, I, th- I think sometimes we have a tendency in our field to be so diplomatic and polite and to give so much um, benefit of the doubt that it is to a fault and it actually leads to uh, less accountability and less rigor. Um, and so there are, there are times when I walk into a program and I immediately can see I or immediately can feel for myself that there's a level of um, engagement or whatever it is, high level, low level, whatever. And, you know, it's, I think it's hard and it's something for, that's important to think about when you're someone who's in a, in, in a position of being an evaluator or a funder or a professional development provider, um, that you are just getting a snapshot. You're not, um, you know, it's not like the dog whisperer, you know, where you have this sort of immediate intuitive connection to each program. Well, and I think, um, what we talked about before is relevant here in that certainly the program environment, those aspects are something that we want to see and feel and hear immediately when we walk into a program and yeah, everybody has their bad days and you know, you can't mm-hmm. always, as you're saying there, you know, it's, it's, um, it's something that you can't always judge, but in some cases you kind of can. Um, but I think also thinking about, um, what we were talking about before in terms of the work that's produced and, and what students are able to do at the end of that program, that may be another way to look at it. And, you know, I know that a lot of out of school time programs do have culminating projects and performances and sort of end of year events, which tend to be perceived as kind of these feel good occasions, right. To invite the parents and to bring others in, but really looking at what's been accomplished and and doing that in a a critical way. And I don't know if um, out of school time programs really do that. And a lot of what 
we do in terms of professional development with um, teachers in our schools is really bringing them together to look at student work, whether it's work that's created by their students or by others in the school or by others in our network, to say, you know, what are we seeing here? What is the student demonstrating? What is, um, you know, what are some of the pieces that are really powerful and that are really proficient in this work? And then looking at what the student was asked to do or what the student was um, provided the opportunity to do and seeing how they may or may not match up. So it may be that a student is not demonstrating something because they were never given the opportunity or the support to do it. And so making those connections between what students are doing and what um, the environment or the opportunity or the assignment or whatever you call it is, is really important. And I think as a field, I don't think that, that out-of-school time programs do that as much as they could or or maybe should. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just it's that it's a good way to look at it. I think it's important things to think about. Um, and I think that it w- it's helpful to have someone like you out there in the field actually visiting programs and really being able to make connections between the competencies and all of that and what, what programs are actually doing. Um, and I also think it would be helpful if, as a field, we could talk more um, – honestly about the challenges of living up to our own rhetoric mm-hmm. um you know it's it's interesting when we've done uh the, the few opportunities we've had to do professional development together with um groups of after school educators from different states around global competency mm-hmm. um the the people who impressed me the most were the people who were the most overwhelmed mm-hmm. and the reason that i that they impressed me the most is because i feel like they really got it that mm-hmm. um it reminds me, I was I was hiring once for a position for a, a teaching artist position for a program, and interview after interview with t- these teaching artists, um, I I kept presenting what the project was, and people kept responding by saying, "This is yeah, no problem. I can totally do this. This is something similar to what I've done before." And I was vaguely dissatisfied with all the interviews, and then I interviewed someone who who said, when I explained what the project was. She sort of paused and said, wow, this this is going to be really hard. I don't think I've ever done anything quite like this before. And then we started talking about, you know, how it could be done. Mm-hmm. And it made that that response made me realize why I'd been dissatisfied with the other responses is because it seemed to sort of belie a, a, a lack of understanding about how deep this really is okay. and and the 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 the, the, uh, the mountainous obstacles that we're up against um in actually being able to accomplish some of this stuff mm-hmm. um and so that's a it's a benefit of the asia society material the um expanding horizons and the whole sort of training and professional development resources that come along with that um the benefit of it being so deep and complex and hopefully still accessible is that for those people who really engage with it, they can say, oh, wow, this is this is actually hard and then set about, you know, doing what they need to do to be able to to utilize the things and actually incorporate these ideas into their programs. Yeah. And I think I mean, I think that students and young people in these programs also push push things deeper. So with something like global competence, I think people who walk out, you know, thinking that, hey, this is this sounds fun, this sounds exciting, and I want to get started, 
I, I don't have a problem with that because I think they will get started in a small way and that could snowball into something much bigger from um, not only the young person's perspective but also from the community and the staff perspective that once you start sort of dipping your toe in the water and exploring these issues and start connecting the dots between what's happening locally and globally that that starts to create lots of more questions and a lot more um, you know concerns a lot more excitement a lot a lot of other things that um, can then open up um, a staff person or a young person's mind to this whole, you know, complicated um, idea of global competence. And so I think it can be a gradual process of realizing that this is a lot bigger than I thought and a lot more connected to lots of other things than I thought. It's not something that I can just do quickly in one little short burst, but it's something that really um, tunnels in and starts connecting and, and starts um, expanding in lots of different ways. So I think that's a very natural process for both young people and, and, um, and adults when they start learning about the rest of the world. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't feel that it needs to be that, um, you know, somebody needs to feel that it's hard or complicated to be able to really get it. Mm -hmm. um, I think they can get to that point mm -hmm. um, over time. And I think that it's not something that most people should feel overwhelmed by because this is this is our world. This is not something that's sort of out there at an arm's length that's, you know, completely um, separated from everything that we experience and do every day. So yeah. as adults, this is the world we live in. This is part of um, our lives. So it's not it's not foreign in any yeah. way. Yeah, I'm I'm just sort of vaguely overwhelmed by the world all the time. I think so, yeah. you know. And in terms of like, it's the world that we deal with every day. Um, it's it's messy and complicated mm -hmm. work. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's not anything that ever you ever complete. Right. You know, it's it's nothing that you can tie a bow on and say we're done. Right. Um, and I think that's what I mean by overwhelmed is not, mm -hmm. you know, not overwhelmed like a feeling of, you know, that it's hopeless. Yeah. You know, but overwhelmed like. Oh wow, this is huge and important. Yeah. You know, the yeah. way that things that um uh call you to action are huge and important. Yeah, and I I, I have to say uh, I feel like that's what a lot of out of school professionals deal with. They deal with the huge and important things that teachers sometimes don't have to or choose not to deal with. So when, you know, people are talking about nonviolence, um, conflict resolution, you know, all the, all the issues that they're dealing with, with the young people in their community, those things to me are very huge and important. And I, I feel that if they have the confidence and the ability and the support to tackle those things, that this, that global competence is something that they also can tackle because it is something that's never finished. Um, just like all those other issues around social and emotional development that are never finished in terms of how we grow as people. That's really what out of school time professionals deal with all the time. So, um, I mean, maybe it's just a matter of perspective too, that, you know, sort of thinking about this as may seem like something that's very, um, content heavy and that's, um, that requires a very, um, nuanced understanding of other countries and cultures. And I think it's obviously valuable to have that, but I think there's ways to approach it that are very, um, uh, real and relevant to youth development in terms of being able to learn things together, being able to explore new things, being able to listen to others and learn from others and think about how you are um, interacting with others. There's just lots of aspects of this that I think um, out-of-school programs really deal with in a, in a very deep way that schools don't. And so I think they have a very unique um, perspective and approach when doing this and, and a lot of assets in doing this work.
Alexis, you and I both uh, present at various conferences around the country and sort of see each other in these random cities at um, conferences. And um, these conferences are sort of large-scale professional development opportunities um, for after-school staff. And I'm, I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about why even bother, why present at conferences, why travel around the country, um, you know, in investing your, your time and resources in making these conference presentations. Yeah, well, partly it's it's the position that Asia Society holds in the field. We are a national organization. Um, we're not a program provider, um, so we don't work directly with students. But we do a lot of work in technical assistance and professional development, um, as I said, both in schools as well as in the out-of-school time field. Um, so for us, this is a, it's a venue to reach a lot of different types of programs to um, really sort of get the word out and get people excited about this concept. Um, but I also find the value of these conferences is that people are in a different frame of mind. Um, we were just talking about site visits before, and when you go to a program, it's a very different conversation than when somebody is outside the building, outside their site, um, with uh, colleagues and peers from programs that are very similar and very different to their own. Um, you know, receptive to receiving new ideas, to talking about challenges, to really investigating what they do and how they do it. Um, and I think those are very rich and valuable conversations um, at those conferences. So it's obviously, you know, a great opportunity to meet others and to network and to look for valuable partners in the work. But I think it's also just the opportunity to sort of have those conversations away from the work that we do every day and to really think a little bit outside the box that makes it, um, I think, a really um, engaging environment for presenters as well as participants um, and for everyone who's involved. So I, I actually really value that time, even though I think sometimes it can be a little bit, you know, there's a lot. And so there's sometimes a lot to digest, but I think that's a good, it's a good thing. One of the conferences that uh, we both have presented at in the past, um, and we will be at again this year, is Schools Out Washington's uh, Bridged After School and Back Conference in Seattle, Washington in October, October 17th and 18th, I believe. Um, in, it's in Seattle for the first time this year. They're, they're moving up to Seattle from Vancouver, Washington, where they've been the last several years. Um, and I guess, uh, I, I'd like to ask you, first of all, talk about, uh, what are, what is it that you're presenting at the, at the bridge conference? Yeah, we're, I just talked to Zach the other day and we're still working out some details, but officially, um, yeah, so, uh, um, Asia Society, we're presenting a session on global learning and after-school self-assessment. So um, in partnership with the New York Statewide After-School Network and other statewide after-school networks across the country, we developed a um, self-assessment tool for global learning. Um, and so the session is really going to focus on how programs at any stage in their integration of global learning can benefit from the self-assessment process. So really looking at um, not only what you're already doing, but what, and thinking about planning what you might be able to do in terms of ramping up global learning, not just in the activities that you provide to young people, but also in how you um, structure your organization, your management, your mission, the culture of the program, uh, professional development across the board. Um, so that's that's one of the sessions. And the other session is going to be presented by Learning Point Associates, um, who's been working with Asia Society over the past year to develop a guide for school principals about um, how to leverage out of school time and community partners to bolster their global learning in their school. So um, as I mentioned before, uh, you know, 
different aspects of global competence really do involve different types of learning environments and settings. When we think about learning how to take action, obviously we think about community projects, about service learning, those types of approaches. And community partners and out-of-school programs have a lot of expertise and can help schools to do this. Um, also, when we talk about performance-based assessment and some of the other different approaches, you know, we're finding that schools really are looking for ways to maximize the amount of time that they can provide to students for learning in terms of global competence. So the guide is really focused on school leaders and leadership teams and how they can um, pull together community partners to plan, um, whether you call it extended day, expanded learning, whatever it may be, um, to really focus on global competence across a student's learning day and across their their year. That sounds great. And uh, just for the record, I believe Learning Point Associates is now actually officially AIR, right? Thank you. um, I don't actually know what AIR stands for, but we'll find out whenever. AIR. Um, So can you talk a little bit about um, the Bridge Conference itself? You've you've been to the Bridge Conference a couple of times in the past. Mm -hmm. is, is there anything you feel like the Bridge Conference is known for? Is there anything special about the Bridge Conference? It brings together folks from multiple levels, from in school, from out of school, really looking at all the different uh, partners and stakeholders and players in the education field, regardless of where they sit or what they call themselves. So um, I really value the conversation um, between after school and in school providers, policymakers, leaders who are working in district offices, as well as folks who are on the ground working in schools and programs. Hey, thanks very much. That one was for you, Zach. Um, Zach Wilson, the uh, manager uh, of the Bridge Conference. I, I call him the curator of the Bridge Conference because one, one of the things I actually really appreciate about that conference in particular is that they're very thoughtful and mindful about the sessions that they have and how the sessions all interact with the, with each other. So you don't have five sessions all on a similar topic happening at the same time. And um, each of the speakers really is engaged and has an understanding of why they're there and how what they have to contribute connects with what other speakers and participants have to contribute. So it's a, it, to me, it's a real curation of the content as opposed to just sort of a collection of, of workshops. Yeah. And I should say that um, being involved in that conference and, and with Schools Out Washington, is a, it's a year-long proposition. It's not something that That's right. you only think about right before the conference or when the proposals do. It's something that is a conversation that goes on over multiple months of the year. And I, I, I appreciate that also. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of creative thought that goes into it, mm-hmm. um, especially if you're part of the the new national advisory committee as you and i both are that's right (laughs) um good conversations good debates um about the issues and and the values that are behind those issues at at the bridge conference and that's what i appreciate it it's got heart it's got it's got a lot of heart well alexis i want to say i really appreciate um you engaging in this conversation with me and being a guest on please speak freely and um i think we just about covered it we think thank you so much eric thank you And thank you for listening to this episode of Please Speak Freely. If you'd like to get more information about Asia Society's work in out-of-school time, uh, just go to asiasociety.org and click on Education and Learning and then After School. Um, For more information about Schools Out Washington's Bridge Conference, just go to schoolsoutwashington.org. And for more information about Development Without Limits, go to developmentwithoutlimits.org. If you'd like to contact me, um, I can be reached at Eric Gurna, E-R-I-C-G-U-R-N-A, at developmentwithoutlimits.org. You can always just go to our website. You can call our office at 212-244-4351. I appreciate your time, 
And I hope you can join us on the next episode of Please Speak Freely. Mm-hmm.